This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Mia. And I'm Scott, and we're culture scholars who absolutely believe in the Prime Directive, until it suits us not to. We are joined once again by special guest Tim Staines, Dr. Stephen Staines, who is a lecturer at the University of Sydney. Tim, what have you been up to since we last chatted? I've been working too much, lecturing, (laughs) tutoring... (laughs) marking um but otherwise very well thank you guys for having me back on to talk about star trek again mm-hmm. <laughs> i think i don't think scott would have accepted us not having you back on to talk <laughs> no. about star trek and i'll just be the person once again to see that be like yep i guess in theory this is all correct i have not seen it <laughs> i will watch it at some point and then i'll be able to join in a little bit more <laughs> So since Tim was last with us, season two of Star Trek has come out. So he's joining us once again so that Scott and Tim can just chat about it. Uh, Obviously informed by our rigorous academic scholarship. But Mm. (laughs) uh, so I think I might begin with Scott. So Scott, interventionism has been quite topical uh, for us of late. Mm. We've been speaking a fair bit about it on A Clash of Critics lately. Uh, and it's also a topic that crept into our previous discussions with you, Tim, on Trope Watchers. So remind us how Star Trek classically handles interventionism. Yeah, so especially after this latest season of Discovery, I've come to this kind of bold statement where I believe that Star Trek is kind of this pro-interventionist series that masquerades as an anti-interventionist one. (laughs) Um, And so this sleight of hand, I mean, this is something that's true for even the classic series, not just the new one, but it's just one that's made very apparent this later season. Um, So this kind of sleight of hand centers on the so-called prime directive, which is actually called uh, General Order One in Discovery, Mm. um, which is this vague rule that insists on non-interference in the internal or natural development, quotation marks around natural development, um, of any encountered societies. Uh, So the Prime Directive, uh, especially in Discovery, is stressed as especially important for societies that do not meet an equally vague threshold for development. And usually this uh, is outlined in commentary as uh, technological or scientific or cultural. Um, But in Discovery this season, it seems uh, technolo- technology is primarily uh, em- emphasised as a threshold, namely warp travel technology. Um, and, and I think this, uh, this is because this kind of technology marks the point where a society almost inevitably becomes aware of or hopefully enters into the broader intergalactic community, um, which is you know, a fairly simple benchmark but one I can probably accept for what is effectively, you know, a a popular intergalactic frontier drama. Um, And I do think this wasn't just a random choice. I think it was, I think stressing warp technology is an attempt to sidestep some of those yuckier undertones of ethnocentrism or even social Darwinism that this kind of threshold concept might actually otherwise carry. Um, I mean, alarm bells should certainly ring when commentary suggests socio-cultural or political characteristics 
um, as part of this consideration, which kind of ties back to presumptions about the natural progress of all societies adhering to the same pathway. Um, and typically at the most advanced point of this pathway sits one's own culture, whoever's inventing this scale to be measured on. Uh, so a scale emerges where all other cultures are judged in relation to and within the terms of one culture, one's own culture. Alongside the kind of unprecedented power this position affords the culture held in esteem, which has uh, historically and currently uh, legitimated quite awful moments in our real world past and present, this understanding also ignores how cultures can diverge in unique or often unpredictable yet no less worthy ways. Um, so Star Trek in this instance kind of seems to benignly invert these assumptions um, insofar as instead of being a justification to intervene or disregard societies supposedly lower on the civilizational scale, um, you know, as colonialism or imperialism has or continues to do, it serves as a reason to tread carefully around them, which I find quite an interesting choice, even though it still carries this kind of echo of ethnocentrism, um, though, and, and, and maintains a somewhat non-textual but patronizing view of certain societies still um, through these continuing assumptions of a universal non-divergent scale of technological progress. No, I absolutely agree. I think that's such a good summary of interventionism in in Star Trek as a whole. And it, yeah, it is kind of it does make you wonder why there has to be this attitude of superiority for the Prime Directive to exist. Like that, every colonial encounter is necessarily an encounter with an inferior kind of people. And what if the Prime Directive is there for to if the primary group is there to stave off this kind of colonial impulse, why is there no... Why is it that warp technology itself has to be the threshold? Like, why is it that when, once you get warp technology that suddenly it's okay to encounter another race? Like, yeah, I'm curious about the justification of that. But also, if... If encounter is possible after warp drive yeah I, I guess it's just the same question like if, if the encounter is possible after warp drive then what exactly is holding back encounters before that point is it that they don't trust that that encounter can be measured like can can they do that in a good way is it that they don't trust that that can happen um what are the protocols around that <laughs> encounter that we never really hear about like how can they do that ethically post or pre-warp. Um, yeah, those questions sort of seem a bit unclear to me as well. Yeah, because it doesn't stop USS Discovery, USS Enterprise from going on the ground in any of these planets they visit that have these kind of pre-warp societies. So they're still encountering, they're just masking their identity. So it's kind of like a disguised attempt to almost anthropologically disappear into these places to learn about them and then come back uh, with whatever information they needed from that particular reason why they went there. Mm. Um, it's, it's an oddly specific technology to single out. I do think it's probably because of the idea that once you can travel in space, significant distances in space, you will encounter mm. the Federation. Mm. And so hopefully by then you're ready to be integrated into that. Right. 
But yeah, I mean, it's awfully specific. And again, like the entire premise of Star Trek kind of contravenes the idea that it's warp technology that holds communities back from encountering the Federation. And I guess it goes back to that sort of origin story we got in Star Trek First Contact, which was Zephyrin Cochran makes the warp drive, he encounters the Vulcans, and then that is the point where humanity becomes, you know, leaves all its wars behind and all its racism and all its money and all <laughs> that stuff. Like suddenly the encounter with the aliens revolutionizes the race. And I guess that that also doesn't make sense to me. I, <laughs> that's something that, I mean, it, maybe we can talk about this a bit later, but how... I feel like we never get the story of how exactly all of that happens. Yeah. So, Scott, how does the Prime Directive typically function within episodes? So surely in any drama, um, invented rules are meant to be broken to some extent. Yeah, okay. So usually the Prime Directive serves as a plot device. That's its pure purpose in basically any episode of Star Trek. It's, a, it's an obstacle for our protagonists to overcome, which is not inherently a bad thing. That's where drama comes from, and that's why we watch this show. So um, that's not, no, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or anything. So, and, and there's usually good to come from exploring these kind of rules and playing with them in certain ways. Um, and that's what a lot of science fiction does with its various constructed rule sets, and it's exactly the same in Stargate and Travelers, which I've been watching recently. Um, in Star Trek, they sometimes find ways to maintain non-interference or like they significantly mitigate its impacts as the resolution of those kind of plots. Um, however, usually the protagonists must decide on the exception, um, which frequently aligns with Federation geopolitical interests. Um, so to place this within familiar geopolitical terms, uh, it often aligns with national interests. It sounds very familiar. Um, Rarely, if ever, do these kind of episodes result in catastrophic failure, though, for our protagonists. Um, so, like, vindicating why the rule exists to begin with. Um, they never cause catastrophe by violating the Prime Directive uh, themselves. But sometimes they do deal with the mess caused by those that preceded them from the Federation. Um, and that's where that uh, vindication comes in. Um, and as we'll get into today, there is no better example of this kind of catastrophe-proof plotting for our main protagonists than when the USS Discovery visits Saru's homeworld. Does that sound true across... Because you've watched a whole bunch of classic Star Trek that I haven't. I've only watched the original series and mm. Discovery. Yeah, I think... Well, I do think that's consistent across the main ones that I've watched, which are TNG and Voyager. They do function as a plot device and a sort of moral justification for various kinds of... yeah forms of geopolitical expansion but also I guess a, a certain kind of relationship to um, racial um, difference as well like justifying a particular relationship to racial difference I think um, the Prime Directive offers that too. Okay so Scott why does any of this matter? Why does it matter? Why does interventionism matter? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Do you have an hour? <laughs> no. Um, so the Prime Directive, um, especially during the original series, it was seen as commentary on US involvement in Vietnam um, during that time. So a superpower intervening on the natural development of uh, Vietnamese societies, how commentators would have framed it back then. 
Um, this may have been the writer's intent. I'm pretty sure they have been explicit on that uh, in the interviews. However, it does strike me um, the flexibility with which the show deploys the Prime Directive uh, as a plot device um, could easily accommodate American justifications for invading Vietnam um, and any of their military campaigns since. Uh, for example, the Prime Directive is often textually dismissed when a rival superpower, usually the Klingons, um, are already uh, meddling in the affairs of another society. This is witnessed in the original series, uh, season two, in an episode called A Private Little War, when the Klingons arm one side of a conflict that is pre-warp um, with advanced technology. Uh, so Captain Kirk decides to arm the other side, um, <laughs> leading to an arms race, like great decision-making. <laughs> uh, so obviously this could easily be read, you know, as an allegory for the Cold War and Russia. And nowadays we can add China as another possible allegorical candidate, especially given how the Klingon Empire um, has been orientalized a little bit in Discovery, which we discussed in our previous episode. Um, interestingly, nowadays, when you Google interventionism in Star Trek, uh, some of the top finds are articles with headlines like, Would Captain Kirk Intervene in Syria? Which is an actual <laughs> foreign policy article. Um, and the Would he? <laughs> is the question, what did it conclude? Well, yes, and... Uh, the Huffington Post kind of beats us to the punch and just says <laughs> <laughs> why Captain Kirk would intervene in Syria as their headline. Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't even bother posing the question. <laughs> um, so Captain Kirk beating those war drums. And you know what? Based off the... Sorry. Based, <laughs> based off the summary of what I just did of the uh, original series episode, yeah, you probably would, to be honest. Um, so it seems in some circles... Captain Kirk functions as a kind of touchstone or shorthand for ethical and rational interventionism. And I am just waiting on articles explaining how Captain Kirk would approve of regime change in Iran and Venezuela mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. So the rhetoric around the Prime Directive and the logic in getting around it clearly resonates strongly with real-world considerations of interventionism in the affairs of foreign sovereign uh, nations. But when we look closer at the Prime Directive and how it's deployed in Star Trek, we can see how Captain Kirk, as the face for the liberal case for intervention, um, is dependent on framing that does not consider the often severe consequences these acts can have or the geop geopolitical self-interest that almost always motivates it or, if textually recognised, usually framed in a way that comes across as only benign uh, intention when it comes to the Federation intervening. Um, but even when a Star Trek figure like Kirk isn't explicitly invoked in real-world debates about intervention, um, Star Trek's discourse and framing of it still feeds into a general way of thinking about such actions that is still worth interrogating. Mm. Mm. I absolutely agree with that again. And I think that um, when I was thinking about this, I sort of thought that TNG and Voyager was sort of made at a time of real optimism about America's global um, global role. You know, they have like that first Gulf War, um, you've got Bill Clinton and a lot of kind of um, optimism about where America is, its wealth, its status, its power. And I sort of thought that after 9-11 and their invasion of Iraq, uh, the second one, that we start to get 
you know, a little bit more cynicism about um, the justifications that are made about those kinds of interventions. Um, and so, yeah, I was curious for us to think about how that plays into um, Star Trek Discovery now. Um, but, yeah, I feel like it is interesting to think about how the different versions of Star Trek reflect mm. those kind of ge- uh, attitudes towards geopolitical intervention and, and about America's role in, in the globe. I feel like that's something you could do with any um, either franchise or mm. even, like, type of, of media. Like, if it's been around for long enough, you just track, like, how it was commenting or reacting to or just kind of feeling the... <laughs> <laughs> the, like geopolitical situation at the time. Absolutely. Um, you know, as we've spoken about Scott in the podcast previously, the the zombie definitely does that. Mm. <laughs> something that yes. I, I talk about. Um, but yeah, I can even without being a, a Star Trek watcher, I could definitely see how <laughs> that would happen. Mm. Um, so Scott, we've discussed the Prime Directive at a general level. Um, how did it specifically factor into season two of Star Trek Discovery? Yeah, okay, so the Prime Directive or General Order 1 was really centrally focused in at least two episodes uh, in this latest season. So episode 2, which was New Eden, and episode 6, which was The Sound of Thunder. So New Eden has a very classic Star Trek feel to it, which I I absolutely adored. I thought that was one of the better episodes of this season. It's one of those episodes that takes an element of Earth history, um, transplants it across space mysteriously, and has our protagonists explore how this came about, um, which is one of my favorite episode formulas for Star Trek. They all do it so many times. Like it's, it's kind of amazing to think about all the fragments of Earth, Earth history that somehow managed to scatter across the universe when you mm-hmm. take in the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, here in New Eden, it's a, it's a fictional history, so a small village that got teleported away somehow during World War III. Um, though often uh, such premises would take, say, Imperial Rome or Prohibition-era New York, transplant it, sometimes distort it, and basically it's just an excuse to have William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy walk around in these time periods. Um, And they're usually just delightful, Uh, campy and delightful. Mm -hmm. I make no apologies for that. Um, But what's interesting about New Eden is how the spore drive, um, which is a kind of green technology that Discovery has where its ability to jump across the universe is powered by fungi rather than, you know, fossil fuel. Um, This this spore drive figures as a microcosm for the exception because at the end of season one, we had a human having to basically hook himself up to control it, which violates codes of... Um, human genetic experimentation. And they really rapidly sidestep that issue just to get (laughs) this episode going um, so they can uh, investigate a red signal location, which was the sort of overarching motivation for why they would go to all these various uh, planets in the latest season. So Captain Pike argues that the the mission takes priority over ethics and that's why they can use the sport drive with a human driving it. Uh, And this comes back around with the prime directive in question when they realized this small village they encounter was accidentally teleported um, from Earth itself. Uh, They have evolved to merge numerous religious belief systems into one unified doctrine. So all the big, the big capital R religions are all one thing now on this planet. Um, And Burnham wants to, quote, rescue them as, quote, kin by reintegrating them back into modern society. And her 
Her argument is attached to the fact that their belief system is a lie, um, hence her probing about science and rationality when among them, which, you know, I'm going to take a sidebar here because I have seen a lot of criticisms of Michael Burnham as this Mary Sue type character, which on trip watches we hate that term. Uh, but <laughs> clearly she's not because that's an incredibly flawed position to have, an incredibly arrogant atheist position to have. Mm. And I do take it, you know, as evidence that this is why she's not a captain. Um, and I don't know how many times she has to fuck up to prove that she's not a Mary Sue. The entire premise of Discovery is how she continuously messes up. So I don't know how that makes her a Mary Sue, but yeah. Yeah, so sorry, just to clarify, someone who hasn't watched it, the framing is explicitly like a, this is a mess up. Because I mean... <coughs> It, on the topic of um, Mary Sue's, I would imagine there probably are a lot of sci-fi TV writers that are arrogant atheists. So <laughs> 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 just to be clear, the framing, what is that? Yeah, so um, the way the episode handles that is she sticks to this argument. Mm -hmm. uh, even when, you know, the drama peaks and after have to make a decision on the exception, she's having a conversation with Captain Pike about how it is the right thing to do to at least tell this one human who has guessed what's actually going on, informing what's happening, because they are, you know, our, we're linked to them, they're us, uh, and their belief system is a lie. And he rejects that argument. Okay. So then she comes back with, a, well, we still need this artifact from them to continue our mission, so we should bend the rules uh, mm, okay. because they have intel that we want or mm. resources that we want. Mm. Uh, and that's when Captain Pike agrees to violate prime directive for this particular instance so it's not like you're like the it's not bluntly framing michael burnham as a terrible atheist uh <laughs> arrogantly trying to intervene on this on this village but it is rejected within mm -hmm. the text um and yeah i mean and if we revert back to the start of season one, the very first instances where she takes out a captain and basically starts an intergalactic war between the Federation and Klingons, yeah, she's not perfect. She's right. not a Mary Sue. <laughs> yeah. And I should also clarify here, like, this isn't a, a judgment of atheism. This is a very Oh, no, specific I'm, I'm an arrogant <laughs> atheist. <laughs> but there is a specific type of atheist discourse, particularly online, particularly in certain <laughs> communities online. Um, which I'm, I'm getting feelings of from you. <laughs> might be, yeah. Uh, Tim, what were your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I, th I thought that the breaking the prime directive there as a kind of trade was also kind of interesting. They traded this kind of like, you know, future energy with this helmet that they had, which had the, the video in it, which they needed was also kind of speaking back to some of those earlier problematic trades in America um, with um, First Nations people. Um, but yeah, I just sort of thought, especially the fact that those people were human as well, seemed to give more argument towards breaking the prime directive as if if they're more human, it's almost like the consequences are lesser because they're one of you, even though they're from a different time, a different, you know, technological development. Um, and so it's, you know, they were very self-congratulatory at the end. Um, <laughs> so you have this great new technology, you're welcome, <laughs> you know. And it's like, it's fine, they're just humans. They're just these kind of like wayward, backward kind of humans who are just, you know, waiting to catch up. So it's all good. Um and, you know, it's another kind of thing that allows for further justification of breaking the Prime Directive. The character of Jacob is actually quite interesting in this episode because he's this sort of, he's the science guy. 
in this small village. He's the science guy and his family has always been the science guy and they've always been right about what's actually going on. Um, but in that exchange with Captain Pike where he hands over the power source and Jacob hands over the helmet, um, it's just re- this really clean resolution where Jacob's like, it's, it's enough that I personally know what's going on. I'm not going to tell anyone else. And we're just meant to, first of all, we're meant to want him to know the truth. That's mm. how the episode guides us as viewers. Mm. And it's also the episode's telling us like, yeah, he's just going to keep his word here. It's not a wholesale violation of the Prime Directive. He's saying he's not going to tell anyone or do anything about it. It's okay. We don't need to think about that anymore. And so the second episode, um, which is not my favorite episode of television <laughs> ever, <laughs> is The Sound of Thunder, um, which, you know, it provides us with a highly anticipated look at the Kelpian homeworld um, and, and culture, which is Saru's homeworld, who's basically the Spock figure of this new Star, Star Trek mm. uh, series. Um, and I was looking forward to this uh, world building, but unfortunately this episode is a hot, hot mess. Um, I've got a very long rant here, so bear with me, listeners. <laughs> the sheer re- recklessness of the interventions made here makes anything that we've been complaining about Daenerys over on ACOC <laughs> look like a carefully considered, premeditated, and negotiated plan. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's kind of it's kind of baffling <laughs> all the things they just assume in this episode. Um, so the premise is um, we learn that. Kelpians have this biological process, um, which they have these kind of ganglia at the back of their neck that can sense threats, and that's part of their evolution. But this season, Saru has this process triggered by an encounter with a sort of spherical entity in space. Something to do with its radiation triggers it, and the ganglia disappears, and he thinks he's going through this biological passage that ultimately, if he was on his homeworld, he would be taken by the other dominant species and killed for his own good, like a mercy killing. Um, And that's what all Kelpians have believed uh, for centuries. But it turns out this is actually part of an evolutionary process where the the ganglia turns into these kind of teeth mechanism. It's it's like Kelpian puberty, maybe. (laughs) And so he realizes that their entire belief system is really just an oppressive power structure designed to maintain the status quo. And the fact that they lose their ganglia means they also lose that sense of fear and they become more empowered as people. Yeah. And so they've been killed by this dominant race before they get to that point. There's some lovely little assertive beats from Saru as he's starting to realise that on this. I love when he like just isn't aware that Captain Pike's just standing next to him waiting for him to get out of his bloody chair, the captain's chair. He's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> These little subtle beats that he's getting a bit more backbone. Although I, I do hope they don't lose um, the sense about his character where he, he's empathetic and has that sort of sense of consequence, which is what I actually enjoyed about his character in the first mm, season. Mm. Um, so, yeah, in the recap for this episode, Saru frames this mainstream understanding of losing their ganglia as a, as a lie. Previously, we have heard about the dominant species on Kaminar, which is the homeworld, called the Ba'ul, um, who, are, who are act as predators to Saru's people, the Kelpians. Um, and here we learn that the Ba'ul um, pointedly achieved warp travel. So they've met that threshold so the Federation can basically approach them as the Federation, not hide any 
anything about the universe to them. And the Federation's political relations with this species are hostile. Um, Burnham describes them as isolationist. Um, And we also learn about this so-called great balance on Kaminar itself, um, which, uh, as we've discussed, is a discursive frame maintained by the Ba'ul and reinforced by Kelpian priests. So there's like a religious dimension to this as well. Um, that preserves the power status quo. Um, and Kelpians are conditioned to believe that it is a necessary circle of life or a mercy, um, being culled as they undergo this bodily change. Um, the arrangement uh, and Kaminar's ho- uh, hostility toward external actors, though, becomes understandable through this the, the information they managed to get from this spherical entity in a previous episode that has, like, all the memory of the known universe for thousands and thousands of years. Um, so historically, the Ba'ul were on the brink of extinction due to the evolved Kelpians, um, who had achieved demographic dominance on Kaminar. And the Ba'ul, therefore, would view Suru's current state as a predator rather than prey anymore. Um, so the Great Balance and the Culling are actually biopolitical projects that keep the Kelpian population manageable and prevent a return of this evolved state, which is an existential threat to the Ba'ul, or a genocidal threat, um, which is a very pointed word that's thrown around in that episode towards one side, and it's not the correct side, I don't think. (laughs) But I I do think there's some open questions uh, that stem from this kind of world building that's not really answered. So if they were on the brink of extinction, the Ba'ul, how the hell did they get technological superiority and turn Mm. that around? Mm. That's not answered. So I do think there's a detail that we'll get in a future season about how that came about Mm. Um, and why keep the uninvolved Kelpians. If you you were on the brink of genocide, why would you keep... It's genocide light. (laughs) It's strange. So, so when the Federation's like um, criticizing the Ba'ul for turning to a genocidal act towards the end of this episode because of everything the Federation do to change mm. that status mm. quo, um, did they not stop to consider that they could have performed genocide at any point but didn't? And there's like some sort of ethics that might have been involved in that. Mm. You know, they it's, don't consider these questions. It's not as if the um, Kelpians are slaves or anything. They're not really doing work for the Ba'ul either. They just exist on the planet. So, yeah, why keep them? I don't know. Yeah. They describe... Uh, Saru describes his people as being enslaved mm. and oppressed. Mm. And the Federation recognises that because Saru, as the first Kelpian to be uh, to do space travel, mm. he's given asylum status by the Federation. That's how he ends up on the ship for 18 years. Mm. He's an asylum seeker. So they've recognised there's an issue here that we disapprove of, but our protocols mean we can't intervene. But this person who's managed to get woke to the status of the universe being mm. much broader than their home planet, we can bring him in as an asylum seeker. Mm. But... Yeah, it's more just a, a rural existence that they seem to be living, except for the awful fact that they're killed once they reach puberty, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's an awful arrangement, but one that, at least for me, is understandable in how it actually arrived at that point. At least you can understand how this status quo came to be when mm. you have that information of the fact that the Bible were on the verge of extinction a thousand years ago. Um, but the show does not really go for nuance 
here. Uh, you, you can see it in the characterization of the Bao themselves. They are ugly. <laughs> they, they're swamp monsters, Nia. They're swamp okay. monsters. They're co covered in black tar. They're spindly. Like, imagine me, but with long dreadlocks <laughs> and just oh, covered no. in tar. Oh, no. Yeah, covered in tar <laughs> with an evil, hissy voice. <laughs> and, the, and the only thing we're told about them after we've finally seen them is they're about to commit genocide. Like, it's not very nuanced mm. in the characterization. And then on the flip side, we have, like, Saru saying the Kelpians are more than their instincts, which we don't have any information to suggest they aren't. Mm. Um, I mean, in classical Star Trek uh, world building, the Vulcans are very clearly slaves to their um, emotions. That's why they repress them so much because it led to imperial expansionism and everything. So in, in a world where that's a thing, how can you just assume that the Kelpians aren't more than their mm. instincts as well? Um, and uh, Pike goes, we need to help them, the Ba'u, understand that Saru is not a threat and the Kelpians need not be a threat. But again, what basis can he actually make that claim? About? Mm. They don't know what brought... Um, they don't know about the biological process that the Kelpians are going through and what impacts that has, and they don't know about the history of the homeworld. They just mm -hmm. know at one point the Ba'u were almost wiped out. So I'm not entirely sure how he can make those bold claims about about intervening, We're, which carries this um, sort of this arrogance in assuming they immediately know better than the Ba'u or the Kelpians or, or mm -hmm. anything about how to manage this situation. And then they go and start intervening by forcibly triggering the biological process by spreading sphere radiation across the home world to force Valarai or whatever it's called on the entire Kelpian population <laughs> to force this evolution on. And without even understanding how that might actually be damaging to the bodies of the Kelpians as well, because that's a very unnatural process mm. as well. Um, it's meant to happen organi or organically, so they don't consider that. They don't consider telling them beforehand that they're going to do this, so they go through this entire painful experience, which they've for centuries associated with the end of their lives. Mm. And then what's going to happen when they don't get taken away and die? There's going to be chaos and rioting because they're like on mass realized they've been lied to for centuries and no one's told them this is the plan. <laughs> And then no one's like got anything in place to prevent uh, like a reverse genocide of the Ba'u mm. as well. In fact, Burnham is just like, they're so technologically superior so they can defend themselves. And like they, they kind of were with the power structure that they had uh, established for centuries. Mm. And why would you not assume that they would use that technological advantage to immediately wipe out all the Kelpians as an existential threat to them? Mm. That seems like a, fa a fairly logical step, which is exactly what they tried to do as mm. well. But mm. they didn't assume that in the decision-making they made. So the Ba'u resort to a genocidal act. It is a genocidal act, and they do need, need to intervene there. And so w when Pike and Burnham are, like, saying, you're about to commit genocide, this is genocide, but the Starfleet are entirely culpable for this situation to begin with through mm. all their interventions. This would not have happened if they had just not done anything. Mm. Um, and there, there are hints that they intend to diplomatically mediate between the two parties. So why not just do that rather than do this ridiculous biological, enforced biological change on the Kelvins? It's very poorly managed. You see what I mean about Daenerys and it's been, yeah. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> did you have any thoughts on this god-awful episode, Tim? Um, yeah, I thought it was an extraordinary episode and I, I, I 
in, at the end of the series, don't they come and help out in the war with their own ships as well? <coughs> the Kelpians. The Kelpians? Yeah, I think so. I think how? Saru's sister appears, yeah. Yeah, do they have their own ships or how do they get there? I can't remember the detail of that. Like, you'd assume they would need warp power to do that. Yeah. They were, were they helped by the Klingons? There might have been some help by the Klingons. So they're already kind of taking this newfound identity into their own hands and are able to wage battles. Um, but I think that was also interesting for me, I can't remember all the details, but there was all of this kind of pike going on and on about how the Prime Directive and then everything just goes to shit. And there's just no... Why, why even have all of that moralizing if you're going to do all of that anyway? I, I suppose on one level, you know, even though all of those interventions were really problematic, there is that kind of like question of, I, I was sympathetic to Saru's condition, mm. you know, like I was sympathetic to the idea that they were being culled and that the idea that their evolution was being, um, you know, minimized. And Saru kind of is one, yeah, like a refugee or perhaps one of those sort of intermediary characters. And there were people like that in Australia too, right? People that were captured, you know, and under different circumstances were captured and were acculturated into, you know, white colonial culture and then were used as in various ways as intermediaries. And he has this kind of liberal discourse that opens the door to this whole effed up situation with forcing them to evolve, uh, etc. But yeah, I, I did wonder about, you know, when we think about the Prime Directive, what what is the, it is a really tricky question, what is their responsibility when they come across a kind of, a, yeah, a shitty situation like this where people are being seriously oppressed and there is one person of that race um, that has this kind of you know, technological awareness or galactical awareness, whatever you want to call it, um, what kinds of obligations do they do? Because on one level, he has gone through a process of interfacing with a, an advanced culture and, yeah, what what role does he... Ha is Are all of his rights as a Kelpian um, diminished because he's part of Starfleet? Um or not. Like, I thought some of those questions were still a little bit blurry for me, um, even though I agree with all of the problems of the intervention. The question of what, what manner of intervention might be possible or necessary in this kind of extreme situation did sort of come up for me. I wondered what you thought about that. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I was thinking about it. I just want to be clear. I'm not saying the Ba'u situation... It was the right situation or it's defensible. It's an awful situation mm. that the Kelpians live under and it does warrant intervention. Mm. Um, I do think like the seeds with which an appropriate response were planted in this episode with the idea of using the Federation's might mm. um, as a threat, as a, uh, as a means of diplomacy, really, to mediate a situation, mm. etch it out. Um, rather than what they did. So my issues mm. is entirely with how they managed that intervention rather than the intervention itself. Mm, mm. Um, but it is kind of interesting how, I mean, we talk about uh, Federation and how it's 
geopolitics sort of maps onto real world ones. Mm. Um, but with Saru and his asylum seeker status, um, he's been with Starfleet for 18 years and he never intended to return to Kaminar. Um, mm. he, yeah, he did not expect to use that access to Federation to push uh, for the rights of his people on his planet. He thought it was a lost cause that because mm. of Federation principles of non-intervention. Um, and Starfleet itself never really attempted to weasel their way into that situation until the Red Angel guided them there. Mm. Um, so that's worth underscoring. Um, it's, it's not quite... But at the same time, by giving him asylum seeker status, they're still recognising... Um, recognizing a situation that's not okay. Uh, and, and when we hear about how the Baal will describe as isolationists, it just uh, sets um, alarm bells in my head thinking about real world connotations and how if the Federation tried to open up uh, this planet to their economies and trade and all this stuff, that government needs to go essentially. Mm. And so then Saru would become like a political football in that situation, but that's not entirely what's happened here. It's all very emergent. Uh, Saru's uh, transformation is emergent. That was unexpected. Mm. Um, so it's not entirely a clean fit to that kind of situation, but it did set those alarm bells going as well. Mm. There's one thing I would like to say, and I agreed completely with Section 31's position on that episode, um, so do you remember that the final scene where Pike's talking to Tyler and Tyler's like, you know, what is the motivations of this red angel? We don't know. And Pike turn around, turns around and says, Section 31's paranoid, this shadowy CIA kind of world building construction. Um, I'm like, no, that's actually a very fair question to ask this, this entity has drawn you to places which has led to interventions, hmm. what is its purpose? And it's not unreasonable for Tyler to turn around and say what happens when it decides we need to be intervened on. So, hmm. and this episode kind of wraps itself up again cleanly. You know, we're meant to take on board that the Kelpians would not resort to reprisal violence. Um, Saru's just going to make sure everyone's got a cool, calm head and not make the bowl pay for centuries of being lied to. Mm, mm. Um, so again, we depart Kaminar thinking, oh yeah, that was a good intervention. That was the right thing to do. And that conversation with Tyler kind of nails that down because we are meant to agree with the Federation against this CIA type construction within the world building. And ultimately that's where the season goes because mm. Section 31 is hijacked by a hostile AI that they created and that's why everything's going to shit. So mm. we're meant to agree with Pike in that situation, but it's a very weak yeah. argument to make as well. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I mean, I mean back, back to your point about, yeah, how there is no diplomatic solution, even though it is kind of flagged as a possibility. There are moments in Star Trek, especially in TNG, where Picard comes in as this kind of like hallowed um, uh, <laughs> sort of negotiator and he's, he's so good at it just because he looks so serious and he's so like righteous, you know. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the fact that that possibility is undercut by being forced into a situation is also a very familiar kind of mm. narrative for intervention too, right? Like, oh, we've got our hands tied behind our back. Um, 
I mean, it's Iran. Yeah. Nuclear power yeah. deal. Yeah. It's exactly it. And all the things you were saying about the reprisals and, you know, that's all the sorts of places too in the Middle East where they just mm. get the hell out of there and then it's a shitstorm afterwards. Um, did you have more you wanted to say about... No, I'm ready to move on to... I had a couple of things on this on this topic, actually, mm. okay. that, like, um, that I want to think about. Um, yeah, so... But uh, I thought this particular episode of... Uh, especially The Sound of Thunder was one where all of these kind of contradictions about the Prime Directive really come to a head and in a really kind of messy, ugly way, exactly as you said. Um, but they sort of stand alone, these moments in, in the Star Trek Discovery. There, are, there aren't many other kind of like, well, there's not a lot of kind of moralizing around intervention, mm. right? Like there are the interventions that the Red Angel um, makes, but then we're not really asked to sort of think about them because control is there. Control, which is a, an AI, which is going to get this spherical data, which is all of the data that has existed in the universe for many, however many millennia, whatever. If it gets this data, then it's going to become a supercomputer and obliterate everything. And so there is this moral imperative for them to do whatever they can to make this not happen. Um, but I sort of thought that it was interesting to me that those moments about the Prime Directive were only occasional and that this actually for the overall kind of arc of the story, it's not really concerned with those questions. They, they flare up in those episodes in a sort of lazy way and then mm. they get even lazier with it as it goes along and they thought, oh, we've raised the question but we're not going to go into this with much depth. Whereas the, some of the earlier series are really concerned with justifying those interventions in various kind of ideological you know, ways. Um, and I sort of thought about why this, tried to think about why this might be like, because I'm so attached to the various moral, moral conundrums that they find themselves in and working through that is really interesting to me. And I found that apart from this episode, there wasn't a lot in the overall arc that allowed me to think about that. And I wondered if this had to do with you know, the introduction of Section 31 as well creates this real grey area, which is that Starfleet's doing all of this immoral stuff because they have to. Um, and we never really thought about Starfleet in quite that explicit way. There are moments where there is that kind of doubt about Starfleet in earlier episodes, but not in quite this explicit way. I thought maybe this had to do with some kind of disillusionment about those justifications in the current kind of times, you know, like after 9-11 in Iraq... And even with Obama, too, who has this kind of, like, liberal hero who actually just bombed the shit out of Pakistan and um, with drones and obviously with Trump, there is this kind of, like, we don't really believe these arguments anymore. Mm. And I wondered if that had something to do with the lack of rigorous, a rigorous need to have tight um, moral justifications. They were never airtight, obviously, um, but at least they did the labour of trying to do that. And because... It, but it, maybe it speaks to a time where we do have to acknowledge all of those moral contradictions, or at least the US liberal kind of politics has to acknowledge all those contradictions that it exists in, right, with Obama even, um, that there, it is, there is that liberal politics is compromised by, you know, and obviously um, Clinton as well and her part of the war machine, um, that there isn't this kind of liberal hero that is right in every instance. Um, 
And how how do you come to terms with all of those moral contradictions within US liberal kind of politics? Like, how do you find a way to justify all of those um, hypocrisies? And I guess in this episode, it sort of becomes this faceless computer enemy mm. that has no humanity, right? Like, this is this, it's quite a easy way out of this problem is that there is this enemy that has no humanity will obliterate us no matter what and therefore um, we have to we have to you know accept all of these moral contradictions and also if there is a threat to yourself you know if you have you know I mean on one level the prime directive and Michael Burnham and everybody else's Starfleet's desire to protect Starfleet is about certain kinds of rights, I guess, like certain kinds of human rights, maybe. I'm, sh- I'm sure you could make an argument for a human rights discourse in Starfleet. Everyone's equal, everyone's dem- you know, part of a democratic system, la, la, la. And you can also make the parallel to the US as well, that, peop- that the part of the US liberal politics is protecting particular rights that other countries you know, um, don't give to their citizens. Um, so... But when those rights appear to be under threat, you, you're compelled to protect those rights but not really think about how you could have more, right? How the government could give you more, how they could be doing more for the people. They're saying, no, no, these rights are important. We have to protect them. They're under threat. And then you sort of forget about all the other mm. sorts of questions. And I feel that that's happening with, the, with control as well. It's this kind of existential threat to everything that has no humanity, nothing can be negotiated with it. Um, and it's, again, a sort of conventional way to characterise an enemy that was a little bit disappointing. Yeah, it was a cop-out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to take the thread of um, Section 31, um, they are like they exist in the season as a foil for Starfleet. It's always mm. tension between those two, between USS Discovery and Section 31. Um and I think that is kind of a reflection of what you were saying about how we don't really buy the bullshit anymore mm. <laughs> that Starfleet mm. um, espouses, that sort of liberal rhetoric and the, the rationalisms that they have for these interventions. So you set up this shadowy um, CIA um, organisation that doesn't operate within the rules, um, that is hypervigilant, uh, it's concerned with military advantage um, and maintaining uh, being ahead of the curve of anything they encounter in that respect. They're, they're mm. very much part of this intergalactic security apparatus, mm. um, which is disappointing because then it stops us thinking about the bullshit that Starfleet espouses and makes us just agree with them mm. versus um, what figures in Section 31 say, except for when it's very clearly they're actually right with what they're saying as with the Tyler versus Pike uh, conversation. Um, And I I do dislike it also because there was always a Section 31 Hmm. in classic Star Trek. It was Starfleet. A lot of the actions that Starfleet took is quintessentially Section 31. There's Hmm. an episode in the original series where Captain Kirk 
um, basically lies to his entire crew, pretends that he's on this manic crusade against the Romulan Empire just as a ruse to get him on board a ship over there to steal their new cloaking technology and bring it back. And Spock was in on this too at one point. Um, that's Section 31, mm. but it's Starfleet. It's like foundational um, to Starfleet because it's from original series and it's uh, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy doing this. We didn't need mm. a um, foil set up to counterpose Starfleet with these greatness because it was always there. But at that time, in those kind of earlier series, even though they're doing behaviours that are like Section 31, I guess the assumption there is that's totally fine, though. Like, there's mm. no kind of explicit commentary on how immoral or how that's part of a moral grey area. They were trying to convince people, and I guess they did, that that was perfectly fine. Mm. Whereas in this episode, for some reason, they wanted to draw attention to it. Um, I think that comes... Again, back to what you were saying about how we're just not buying the bullshit anymore. Mm. So we needed that sort of institution to counterpose it. But by the end, I mean, Tyler, who is a character that, you know, I think that, you know, I sympathise with. Yeah. And he becomes the head of Section 31 and it's like, great. You know, like yeah. we're on the side of Section <laughs> 31 by the end. We're on the side of it. I was on their side by the midway point until yeah. they got taken over by the AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it is this kind of thing where it's like you're – you're meant, you're meant to acknowledge that Starfleet is doing dodgy stuff, mm. that it's breaking its principles. The ending of Star Trek Discovery with Burnham's incredible speech in front of everyone, how we need peace and brotherhood or whatever it is. And then, and then the second season's like Section 31. It's like you're meant to acknowledge, oh, yeah, this is an inevitability that we have to do it. And we just we don't want th to think too much about yeah. it, actually. We don't want to give you too much information. We don't, the audience doesn't need to think too much about it. We just need to know that it's happening and we need to be okay with that. We need to be on side with it. Yeah. It's sort of the sentiment that I got by the end of it. Yeah. It, it's, an, it's, a it's a season and a series that's not really interested in following through on some of the questions they exposed with the Prime Directive, as mm. you were saying. And that does remind me of how they kind of had this abortive theme about religion. You know how mm. they... It was actually in New Eden where they had the Arthur C. Clarke quote about um, technology and magic and they inverted it to me like extraterrestrial seeming like godly. Mm. And then it just didn't escape that episode. So those kind of questions, um, they sort of pose them and then just don't really follow through on oh. it. And they just had ended on this dramatic but ultimately unfulfilling big bad in the end that mm. kind of took the sting out of a lot of those questions. Mm. And I do have to say that while I was watching it, I was totally sucked into it. Mm. Like I was, it was just, you know, action after action, plot twist after plot twist, and every, it never stopped. And so I couldn't stop watching, mm. you know. And so I was really into it and I enjoyed it. But when I sort of sat back and thought, well, what is actually happening in this? <laughs> it was quite difficult to, to yeah. find strong threads. Yeah. Mm. I, I found it a fun series. Yeah, I yeah. overall did enjoy it. Yeah. It's just not... Episode six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not control. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's maybe pivot a little bit and think about the season a bit more broadly too. Were there any other thoughts you had about season two of Star Trek? Um, one of the things that I found really interesting about, I mean, season two is their sort of increase in characters that have weird mixed kind of loyalties and identities. So we've already had Tyler um, and Burnham, Burnham being a transracial adoptee, um, but now we have Spock, half Vulcan, um, we have Arium, who is half machine mm. um, as well, 
and um, Hugh, who sort of gets rebirthed into a new body and has to sort of contend with his old identity and his new identity. And I thought there was a real kind of like vamping up of this kind of identity position um, that was really interesting. Um, and Burnham also has three mummies <laughs> and she has three... Um, she has uh, a white mummy, a black mummy, and an Asian mummy. And I thought these were very interesting. The way that they did that <laughs> was kind of weird. And, of course, with Star Trek, all these mummies were never, ever um, race, like mentioned as, ra- as mm. raced in any way. But her return to her, you know, what she thought was a lost black mother mm. comes back. And then there is this kind of, like, tension, I guess, between her sort of white mother and her black mother and um well i guess there's a desire to return to her black mother and find wholeness and authenticity through her connection to her black mother so it's kind of done in a um roundabout way but there is this sort of way in which she her narrative is a kind of comment on her blackness even though for most of the series like her blackness is never really acknowledged. Mm. It's kind of acknowledged maybe like in her hairstyle, but otherwise she's not very black at all. And this is because in the future it's meant to be that we're all past this, Mm. right? Like racial kind of identities and racial difference and racial discrimination. Um, But again, there are these various characters, and I know that I've kind of made this argument before, but it is interesting how... They, they become sources of a suspicion, sources of suspicion. So Tyler especially um, and Spock as well. Spock has all sorts of gripes with his own humanity that he directs at Burnham, really. He has all of these kind of problems with his sister and all of her weakness as a, weaknesses as a human. Um, and But they all sort of come around. They all come good. Right, and they're all sort of on Starfleet's side by the end. And one of the things that I found a little bit frustrating about this narrative of framing mixed race people is that there were um, well, there were really good moments where they became problematic in the sense that, like Tyler, has all these really interesting um, ways in which he does take Klingon. Um, identity seriously. He thinks the Klingons are important. He thinks that their system is important and that Laurel has an important presence. Um, and there are all these moments where he speaks Klingon, which he disrupts the kind of mm. the ease, the kind of assimilation, um, the assimilative kind of like culture of Star Trek. But what's interesting about these characters to me is that they end up not really questioning Starfleet's or humanity's kind of values when they should be positioned to do that in an interesting way, especially Spock. Mm. Spock is very critical and he directs all of that to Burnham, Mm. but he's unambiguously uh, loyal to Starfleet and it doesn't make any sense to me. Why why wouldn't he question humanity? He's he's totally pure logic. He has many, many ways into criticising humanity, but he doesn't. And the same with Tyler, right, and... And Burnham as well is like totally the embodiment of everything that's good about Starfleet in the sense that she she holds all of the values. She even though she's flawed, she she's the one that saves the universe and you know, she's this kind of like larger than life character. She gets all the monologues at the end of the season. Absolutely. 
And so I thought it was interesting that, I don't know, that they're framed in this way, um, that, they, that they're assumed, that they become threats and that they're assumed to be disloyal until they prove otherwise. And there isn't a lot of space for them critiquing and unsettling humanity or whiteness, really. Um, and, yeah, it's a very... It's a very um, their potential for critiquing humanity and whiteness is really evacuated from it. And I guess that's part of the politics where it's a post-racial mm. kind of, you know, space. Um, but again, the, all of that kind of like... The, all, the whole problem of how to deal with race relations is all is sidestepped um, every time. And, yeah, I just thought there was something kind of missing about that. And in terms of Burnham's, Burnham's three mums, I mean, I wondered about why there was so much focus on her mums. And some people said it was infantilizing that even though she's, you know, the sort of saviour that they keep bringing it back to her parents. Um, um, but I also think that, yeah, maybe there's some potential there um, for thinking about, yeah, I don't know how she could be seen as racialized or have mixed loyalties. And it's not just uh, the presumed races of her three mummies, it's also she has Vulcan heritage mm. as well. Yeah. She, she is raised by a Vulcan family, Spock's family. Um, so just... I, I <laughs> And her third mummy, Philippa Giorgio, is not even her actual third mummy. It's mm. a space Nazi alternate dimension version of her of <laughs> third mummy. So it's, it's very, it's very, yeah, yeah. Me is giving me a look. It, <laughs> it's, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but it's weird that she needs those mummy characters. Mm. Though. Like, why, why does she need those mummy characters? She's the savior of the universe, like... And her whole complex is with, you know, her parents. And I'm sure there's some kind of psychoanalytical reading that you could do there that I don't have the brain capacity to do right now. Right. But, like, it is, it is interesting that she is stunted by this. And it is kind of, like, quite a significant part of her. But she also kind of, in, she carries so much, not just in terms of, you know, the, carrying the you know future of the universe in the in the series, but she also she, her representational she, representationally she carries a lot too, mm. um, in terms of her embodiment of diversity. And that's another thing that I thought that might be worth questioning about this series is that it's so diverse. Mm. You know, like it, there's a lot of diversity. Um, her all of her mummies, right? Racially diverse. The crew are racially diverse and different kinds of. And so, but I, but I wondered, like, if you're going to create a post-racial universe, and this is, I guess, true of all Star Trek, if you're going to create a post-racial universe that doesn't talk about race, but does all of the diversity kind of quote as well, what does that mean for diverse representation? Are we just w waiting to get to the stage where it's so diverse, but we're not talking about race, and that's kind of, like, great, like, mm. that that's, that's what we're aiming for? I sort of wondered about when you're not having those conversations, difficult conversations that is confronting humanity or whiteness or absolutely not talking about race at all, what kind of diversity is that? And we, we always talk about Star Trek as this kind of like, you know, the heaven of diversity. It's so progressive. Um, but is it, is it a way of silencing 
a discussion about diversity just to have diverse looking people in there. Um, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, it's kind of the conversation we had last year in terms mm. of like, what do you want out of your science fiction? Um, do you want to be able to see yourself in a way that like it doesn't have all of the stresses of the real world. Like do you want escapism mm. that reflects the world that you want or do you want to see yourself reflected in a world that sees people that look like you or in similar situations to you or whatever grappling with the same issues that you grapple mm. with and being able to kind of productively work through that, like which is more helpful. And I think you're honestly like, mm. <laughs> how tired are you? I think is how you <laughs> answer that question. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, I guess there is something to be said for the positive potential of escaping from that um, and embracing a representational diversity that is valuable in its own in its own right. Yeah, I mean, it does have conversations about race. It's just metaphorized as alien races, mm. With, mm. Uh, particularly through Spock and his heritage. Mm. Um, I mean, I do think in terms of Star Trek and its imagining of a post-racial world, I do see the value in not making it a big deal between the human um, actors, the human characters, mm. um, as something to strive for. I, I think that there is some comfort that can be taken from that. Uh, when we live in a pop culture age where we are thinking, um, you know, we need to point out that our cast is predominantly African-American or non-white in various different ways. Mm. Um, which I do value that approach as well, but ultimately what I would want is for a point for our popular culture in our living existence to be like, this is not a big deal anymore. You don't even need to point that out as mm. good PR anymore, mm. um, which is what Star Trek's kind of doing. But mm. then I think about other things like uh, the new Buffy that's coming, who they've recast Buffy as a black woman. Mm. And the idea of if that show were to not deal with race, that would sit weirdly with me, mm. given that's kind of more set now-ish. Mm. So I think that's something that uh, a genre like science fiction or speculative fiction can get away with a bit more mm. for that mm. very reason as well. Mm. Yeah, and maybe there it does create a worthwhile space. Like if you, if you can create a space where you've missed that equation, then what kinds of questions can be raised? Um, and what kind of thought experiments can you do once you take that equation out of the, the scenario? Mm. Um, yeah, I guess Star Trek does do that quite well. All right. Well, that sounds like a good place to end it. Tim, thank you for returning for your annual <laughs> Star Trek discussion. I'm sure we'll get you back whenever the next season comes out. <laughs> thank you both. It was wonderful to be here again. You can find him on academia.edu. We will put a link in the description. If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tropewatchers. Pledges start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs. You can also support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice or by recommending Tropewatchers to a friend. If you're a fan of Tropewatchers and the worlds of Restoros and Essos, check out our sister podcast at Clash of Critics, our scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. Our website is tropewatchers.com. We are on social media at tropewatchers and you can email us at tropewatchers at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia and we are your tropewatchers. Watchers.